It's showtime. Don't say it, please. Don't say it. No, I have to say it, Mitch. Showtime. Showtime. It's showtime, everybody. Showtime. Welcome back to the Showtime Movie Podcast. As always, I am your host, Show. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, reviewing, commenting, interacting with me on social media because as uh, as the pandemic continues in the world, I am a lonely person. So thank you so much for interacting and, and just generally listening. It's always fun to talk movies, uh, especially in a time where there are not a lot of movies to talk about, right? I mean, the last couple of episodes have kind of focused on the fact that there just haven't been as many movies as we thought there would have been at uh, this point in the summer. I always feel like, and I've said this before on the podcast, but I always feel like the summer blockbuster season is, I think, my favorite time of year, even more than the Oscars sometimes, right? Not always, but sometimes. The Oscars obviously are the definite close second, if not the the favorite sometimes. I guess it just depends on how I feel, right? You probably can talk yourself into either. But summer blockbuster season, basically from what? That last little part of April right through to the end of August where things start to taper off a little bit. But those several months there are some of my favorite times of the year because you get the most inventive movies, the biggest movies, those popcorn movies, as uh, you guys know I like to call them, and very many other people call them that as well. And and because of the quarantine, because of the pandemic, we basically got just not had a a popcorn summer blockbuster season in 2020, right? It's just completely been gone. And uh, it's a a real shame, I think, right? Black Widow has been moved. James Bond was moved. Fast and the Furious was moved. uh, Mulan, I believe, has been taken off the release calendar entirely. That was uh, from last week. So we don't really know what's happening with Mulan right now. Possibly we hear some news on that in the coming days. Maybe a premium VOD price point, perhaps, for Disney Plus or acquire you can acquire it in some other way, maybe. Uh, we've learned that Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, which a lot of people were looking forward to, including myself, that's been taken off the release calendar entirely. What does that mean? Also VOD? I would be surprised if a huge release like a Wes Anderson film, which usually is an Oscar contender and so on, goes goes only to VOD, but I suppose we'll see. Tenet, Christopher Nolan's Tenet, which has been uh, often said that it's going to come out in the summer, has also been moved to another uh, time slot. I believe now with Tenet, which really interests me, because here in Canada, and as you guys know, I record from Toronto, Ontario, here in Canada, Tenet looks like it's going to be released ahead of getting its release in the United States of America, which is really fascinating because usually, of course, Canada and the U.S. are basically just part of that North American market. They're just, for all intents and purposes, they're one market, but because of the the rampant, unchecked nature of COVID-19 south of the border, Tenet is being treated as an international release here in Canada and not in the United States, so they can be gotten out for for more people, I suppose, right? And and there's a a release plan for for elsewhere as well, certainly overseas. But as it pertains to to me and where I think most of the listeners are here here in Canada, yeah, it's pretty interesting to see that Tenet could be coming to theaters, I believe, right now. It's scheduled for the end of August. I don't. I forget what day exactly, but at the end of August, which is, I mean, again, I'm recording this at the uh, tail end, the final waning hours of July 2020 as we uh, click over to August 2020, August 1st, as sports also return. For those of you who are sports fans, I'm very excited about sports returning. The NBA is already back, as we saw with LeBron James and Kawhi Leonard last night, and 
baseball is back and all these different things. But hockey returns uh, tomorrow on Saturday, August 1st. So it's uh, it's very exciting if you're a sports fan, but not so much if you're a movie fan. Uh, hopefully you're you're both, so you can get a little bit of one, and even though you're missing it on the other. We will talk about actual movie reviews on the podcast today, because like I mentioned with the whole VOD thing, video on demand, of course, you know, we've gotten some movies over the course of July. I've actually, I probably have seen, over the course of the quarantine, I have probably seen the most new movies in a single month in July that I have any other time in quarantine, which is pretty fun. I got to see The Old Guard on Netflix, that new Hulu movie, Palm Springs, uh, First Cow, which I want to say actually was was out at some kind of film festival last year, maybe. Uh, it, definitely, it was it was being talked about as early as March of 2020. It possibly had come out, again, yeah, it's from film festival, the tail end of 2019, or something like that, anyway. So, so it definitely was being talked about in March, and it was going to be released at the TIFF Lightbox, I think, and I was going to go see it, and then the, the quarantine and the pandemic just shut, shut everything down, so didn't get to see that. I have seen it now, very exciting, and uh, we're going we're gonna to end or sprinkle in somewhere. I don't know if we'll end on it, but we'll do Money Plane at some point, the newest Kelsey Grammer movie, which, uh, you know, if you've, if you've seen Kelsey Grammer's filmography recently, you probably are not super impressed, unfortunately. Then again, he's never had a super impressive movie filmography, right? He's, it's more of a his, his TV filmography. I don't actually know. Is that called something else? Is filmography only for movies, considering it's filmography? Is it like televisionography? I don't actually know, but anyways. Kelsey Grammer. Frasier, of course, which is, I think, one of my favorite sitcoms, if not my favorite sitcom, which is the, pretty much the only reason I watched Money Plane. And you know what? That's half the review right there, so <laughs> maybe you don't have to listen to that part. But uh, before we do get to the movie reviews, I actually wanted to sneak into, I guess, mini-reviews, I guess. Because I, I had said that July had brought forward the most new movies that I had seen during the entire pandemic. So certainly the four I just mentioned. But also Hamilton and Jumanji The Next Level. So Jumanji 2, I guess. I don't know, if technically Jumanji 3, I suppose. But let's just call it Jumanji The Next Level. The second one with The Rock and Kevin Hart and Jack Black and Karen Gillan, and they introduce, of course, uh, Danny DeVito and Danny Glover. And it was good. It was a good movie. It was funny. It was funny seeing The Rock and Kevin Hart act like old men. And then uh, Aquafina was also in it, which I did not realize. And Aquafina, when she gets her chance to act like an old man without having without spoiling the movie, I mean, the movie came out in, what, at Christmas time, so it's not really a spoiler, but in case you haven't seen it, I won't really uh, talk about it too much, but... They all kind of get the chance to swap characters, right? Because if you recall, this movie is about four real-life teens. Uh, now they're heading to university, kind of taking the avatar form of video game characters. And the video game characters look like The Rock and Jack Black and Kevin Hart and so on, right? So, in this movie, uh, Aquafina is a new video game character. Nick Jonas makes his... Uh, makes his uh, second appearance in a Jumanji movie as another video game character. It's pretty interesting... And, I, again, the comedy, it's basically one of those things where if you liked the comedy of the first one, you liked the interplay, you liked the way the, the characters in, interacted with one another, it's basically just more of that. It's more of that. And I, and I don't really think that's a bad thing. I really enjoyed the first one. And I think maybe because this didn't catch me by surprise. Again, how much do we talk about expectations on this podcast, right? But because of that, I was expecting it more, and therefore maybe I didn't really love it as much as the first one but at the same time it was very funny and i think that's pretty much all you're going for you're just going to see the rock and kevin hart 
throw barbs at each other. You're really going to see Danny DeVito and Danny Glover be kind of acted out through other people, which was funny as well. They even have a fun little nod to the first Jumanji movie at the very end, if you're paying attention, which is kind of cool. So, yeah, it was a, it was a fun watch, a pleasant watch. And Hamilton... Mm, Hamilton is so weird, right? Because it's a play that came out in 2015, and it's so expensive that if you are not wealthy you're, or, or you're not you don't live in a place like on Broadway or near Broadway and you're not willing to drop literally everything to get those last minute tickets at the very nth second right the 11th hour then you're probably not going to have ever seen Hamilton much less with the original cast which is what they recorded for uh, for Disney plus right so this is if you're not familiar Hamilton, as well, as everyone's been talking about, is a recording over two, I believe, stage performances, one with an audience and one without an audience, so they could uh, kind of put it to film and show you what Hamilton is like on on Broadway with the original cast. And I gotta say, it's very good. I mean, I, I like Broadway movies. I like, or I like Broadway plays. Plays in general are fun. I've seen Wicked. I've seen Come From Away, which is very moving. I've seen a Robin Hood musical, which is really funny. I've seen The Lion King as well, all really good, right? And Hamilton, I think, is just the next really popular play. Because I mentioned Wicked and The Lion King, and I think The Lion King, even now, is still the the most popular by ticket sales uh, Broadway play ever, even more than West Side Story and Rent and so on and so forth. And I really feel like with Hamilton... Hamilton is basically going to be the gateway drug for Broadway musicals and Broadway plays in general, more than I think any other play, at least of its generation, had the chance to be. But again, no more than Rent was. Rent was extremely popular. Remember that whole 5,000, 2,500, 600 minutes or that song? Remember that whole thing? Everyone loved that song. Just like everyone loves Alexander Hamilton and Satisfied and... Any of the other terrific musicals, uh, musical numbers, I should say, from Hamilton, I think uh, I think uh, it, it's a terrific production. It's not a movie. People are getting upset that Hamilton cannot be nominated for Oscar this year. It's not a movie. It's it's a it's a film documentary. I guess that that's the closest it comes to being an actual film. But it is literally just a recording of a stage performance. That is not a movie. I, I kind of get annoyed with people who say. Oh, yeah, yeah, it should win Best Picture, lock for Best Picture. No, no, no. It's really good. I'm not saying it's bad. It's just not a movie, which I think is really interesting. And people are like, oh, can it, can it win Tonys? Yeah, it did win Tonys. It won a bazillion Tonys back when it came out in 2015. I don't know. It's weird. It's a weird, it's a weird in-between. I think, if nothing else, Hamilton actually got me excited to see the actual movie version of In the Heights, which I believe is the the musical that... That Lin-Manuel Miranda, who, of course, is famous for, for a lot of things now. He wrote the music for Moana, of course, amongst other things, after, like since Hamilton, since becoming famous for Hamilton. And, uh, yeah, he uh, wrote the musical In the Heights, which, of course, stars uh, one, of the, one of the actual stars from the original run of Hamilton in the titular role. So uh, In the Heights coming out, that was, again, an, an, another victim of the pandemic that was supposed to come out this summer during the whole blockbuster season. That's gotten pushed to next summer as well. So that's kind of a bummer that we didn't get to see that. But Hamilton itself is absolutely fantastic. If you like, if you like music, I think you'll just like Hamilton in general. I, I think there are some problematic things about it, generally speaking, in terms of 
how how slavery is kind of kind of a little glossed over, I guess. Like they do mention it, but I mean George Washington, who is a, a main character and very much deified in this film, you know, or in this in this in this Broadway play, of course was a slave owner. I don't know. It's a I don't want to get too much into that. And of course, I am not a scholar on American history, but it, there are some problematic elements to it that I think get glossed over because people just really like the music. But I suppose that's a part of it. At the same time, I think you have to be conscious of the kinds of things you're consuming. But hey, I watched Hamilton. I liked the music. Uh, my brother watched it. He liked it. My mom and my rest of my family, they all watched it. Everyone seems to generally like it. But it is, I think at the very least, it is a stunning capture of how talented all of these people are, how talented the musicians are, how talented the stage people are in the choreographers and everything, because it really is a true work of art. And I think it's, if you, it, I would have loved to have seen it in person. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, I'm also not a millionaire, so I probably will never see it, even though it was coming to Toronto's uh, version of Broadway to the Mervish Theater. Uh, I was supposed to, I probably, people would have seen it by now, definitely. And I, I would not have been one of those people because I think the lines to get it both online and in person were absolutely crazy by all accounts. So, hey. I'm glad I got to see Hamilton, and because of the cost, ultimately this is the best way for people to see it. So I hope you, uh, I hope you have a subscription to Disney Plus, or maybe you get your free trial or something like that via some way, because it is definitely worth watching if you get the chance. Okay, enough about Hamilton, enough about Jumanji, enough about movies that are no longer on the release schedule. And don't get me wrong, I want to see Mulan. I want to see The French Dispatch. I want to see Tenet when slash if it does come out in Canada before it comes out in the United States. I want to see these movies, but when there are when there is more news to talk about, we will talk about it. But for now, let's talk about movies that are out now. You can watch these movies. I have watched these movies. Hopefully you have too, or you're you're wondering whether or not you should watch these movies. And I would say of the movies that we're gonna talk about, again, The Old Guard, Palm Springs, First Cow, and Money Plane. I would say three of the four are really, really good. Isn't that fun? Isn't that fun? That's that's such a fun thing to be able to say. Money playing, I almost feel like, is intentionally bad, but we'll get to that when we get to that. I want to start with Netflix, because The Old Guard is the latest, I guess, comic book movie, and it's kind of surprising to see Netflix green-lighted considering their history with sequels, but all the same... I had way more fun watching this than I probably ever thought I would, which is always a pleasant surprise, don't you think? So, without further ado, let's talk about the review for Netflix's The Old Guard. Okay, so first things first, like I mentioned uh, before, this is a comic book adaptation, a comic also called The Old Guard, if that's what you're interested in searching it up after seeing it. And I I gotta say, I like this movie enough that I was considering searching up the source material. I think one thing that's important to remember, and again, I have not read the comics. I've not read, I'm not a huge fan of The Old Guard. I didn't really even know it existed until I saw this movie and then I looked it up afterwards. But after looking it up, both the movie and the comic book are very similar in that they tackled the idea of immortal soldiers, right? And I suppose, (laughs) I I laugh because you would think that that's a no-brainer, right? But I mean, how many properties have we seen over the course of life where it just gets completely changed and it's basically not even the same property? Artemis Fowl, right? So I really do think that it, it, it was probably impossible for them to screw this up, but at the same time, 
we all know movies, we all know studios, and we all know all the different things that have caused all the different projects over the years to go so painfully wrong. So it's a good thing they didn't change it. And ultimately, I guess, the, the core concept of immortal soldiers operating in present day out of the shadows is not something that it's particularly hard to screw up, I suppose. And, and like I said, really good. I mean, their their objective here is to save the world. And it's not like they're saving it from any one overarching threat. Like, it's not. there's not some kind of nuclear bomb that's going to go off and they have to stop it from going off. Or someone who's being kidnapped and they have to rescue them. I mean, like, actually, that does actually happen in this movie. But it's not really a, a world-ending threat level, which is kind of nice. It's just they operate to do small jobs here and there to rescue people who have been kidnapped by dictators or war crimes or they operate in in different wars over the course of history i mean you see p p pictures of them in world war one and world war two the vietnam war and certainly wars going back hundreds if not thousands of years before that and uh yeah that's pretty much it right that's the core concept and uh director gina prince blythewood i think she does a very 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 good job a terrific job of creating these characters even though again they're from these archetypes from the comic book so they're they're characters that have some kind of like they're informed somehow by the comic books i guess so kudos to her for adapting that but i still think she does an amazing job at making them feel real they, they feel so lived in right even even if some of them get less screen time than others less dialogue than others i really think that she did an amazing job that make like she makes them feel so believable Considering that they're immortal characters, right? Because, I mean, that just by itself is enough to just make you think, ah, oh, well, why do they do anything? They're immortal, right? But I, I really do think she gives them some fun motivation, some good motivation in terms of how they relate to each other and how they relate to the world, which I think is really great. Uh, Charlize Theron, of course, is the star. She's the vehicle for this movie. And as you might imagine, she is the primary role of leader and drama key. Uh, I think they just call her Andy, which I think is pretty great, right? Uh, imagine shortening your name from Andromache to Andy. <laughs> pretty, 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 pretty terrific, especially if you're like some kind of Wonder Woman Amazon. I, I don't know; it's not really implied like what she is. I think she's some kind of Greek warrior from several thousand years ago. It's not really said how old she's supposed to be, but from what I can gather from the comics, she is supposed to be like several thousand years old. So she's the oldest one, if not the first one. But anyways. She's terrific, as you might imagine. She has that steely gaze down to a complete science. I mean, like, she should basically patent it at this point. But still, she's she is so good that you can probably just immediately look off to everyone else. And the rest of the band of four are pretty fantastic. Uh, two of the men in this group, because it's Charlize Theron and then a guy, and then it's her and then three other guys. But one of the guys is kind of off on its own, off on his own, and then two the other two are a couple. And it's treated as utterly normal, which I love. It's absolutely terrific. They have a very uh, romantic scene, actually. They get captured. One gets captured first, the other goes in, and he also gets captured. And uh, one of them kind of professes his love for the other in a really poetic, romantic way. And it's not silly. And I feel like it, it comes... It's so, like, just having those scenes in movies come so dangerously close to being silly, to being kind of campy, and it's not at all. And I think that's another reason why, again, credit to Gina Prince-Blythewood, the director, because she makes them feel so sincere in a way that other comic book adaptations don't. And from what I, from what I understand, that, that whole romantic, poetic moment is actually a moment from the comic book. So, again, kudos to her, because it really feels authentic. I think that's really good. Uh, the only thing I would say 
that keeps this movie from being truly great is probably just the regular convention of movie watching, right? There's a point in this movie where they they basically have to introduce a new member to the squad. So someone who is basically a 30-year-old, the 25 to 30-year-old person. She's a Marine. The actress's name, Kiki Lane, who you might remember from other films earlier in 2019. She's pretty great as a former Marine, Niall, because she basically is struggling with learning that she is now immortal. She wasn't before, but it's something that I guess like activates at some point in your life. They don't really explain it, nor do I really feel like they need to explain it. It would just be all science, techno babble, basically, right? Like your cells have started to divide, and is it God? Is it is it just human nature? Are we genetic freaks? Are we mutants? Who knows? Like I don't think it really matters, to be completely honest, but I think because... Niall's character is the way that you and I, the audience, basically find out about their new powers and what they can do, what the limits are, the history as she wants to know more about why she dreams of them and, you know, what happens when they're apart and their convention, their 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 systems for punishing each other when they screw things up, like all the, all sorts of things, right? Operating on different levels because these guys are immortal and you find about you find out about all of it through her, basically, right? Through Kiki Lane's Nile. And it just feels a little formulaic, I think, right? It's a little rote. It's no it's no real no one's real fault, I suppose, right? Like they they had to do it because otherwise it would probably probably be so inscrutable that it wouldn't really make sense, but it does drag it down a little bit. And that's really the only knock I could really put on this film, because otherwise it's it's terrific. The real highlight of this movie, though, as you might imagine, are the incredible action scenes. Like they're they are just so sick. I gotta say, they are next level. They're quick. They're brutal. They're raw. And even with all of that going on, you can still tell what is happening, which I think is a uh, is something that is underrated for action scenes, right? Because sometimes you think, oh, what the hell is going on right now? I can't see. I mean, look at the look at the look at the Transformer movies, for example, right? And maybe this is a bad comparison because these are giant robots and these are human beings. And how many great action movies have we seen both in both westernized ones and overseas i mean how many how many times have i gushed about the raid for example right so i'm not saying it's necessarily on the level of the raid but it is really 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 good uh the special effects also of seeing people heal in real time is pretty cool um there's some interesting scenes and how they use their their immortality and and kind of like wolverine like healing because that's really what they are right have you ever seen any of those x-men movies they're basically Wolverine in terms of how quickly they heal, just without the adamantium skeleton and the claws. That's essentially what they are, right? So that makes it a little easier to, to imagine in your heads. That That's, I think, made it a lot easier for me as well, now that I say it out loud. Uh, but yeah, there are some interesting scenes in how they use their healing factor, I guess. She, shielding someone with nothing more than their bodies, for example. It's all pretty fun, and it's all it's just so visceral, which I think is great. Uh, I really do hope this movie gets a sequel, I should say, because... The final scene of this film, which basically could serve as a trailer for The Old Guard 2 if that ever does get made, sets up a premise so much more interesting than this entire first movie, which is crazy to say, right? And and, and I want you to misunderstand, that's not a knock on this movie, okay? It's just that this movie essentially almost entirely was an introduction to who they are, what their motivations are, how their powers work, who Niall is... Her kind of coming to grips with losing her family and and losing her job as a Marine and losing her friends and all sorts of things like that, that by the time they get to the final final scene of this movie, 
it, it just it, you don't have to really deal with that anymore and they can do some really cool stuff right and i won't spoil it if you haven't seen it but if you do watch it if you do watch the movie i should say please stick around because i, I forget genuinely if it's a mid credit scene or if or if Netflix just lets it roll immediately after the final quote-unquote real scene of the film, but even so, it's super worth it. And I th- really think it sets up a a really terrifying villain, more than likely. And th- you don't really know, I suppose, but it certainly implies that this character that they, they, they bring in is going to be a really cool villain for the Old Guard 2, which is so exciting, right? So I, th- I think that's, uh, that's pretty cool. I, I genuinely think, actually, if they do announce a sequel, and we know the, the kind of history with netflix and sequels and how they how they treat views and you know i mean like remember that will smith movie bright and i mean i'm not saying that movie is good by any means but that movie never got a sequel and i I think a lot of people kind of assumed it would so since it's not who knows what happens with the old guard too i i would say that the 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 reception for this movie has been largely very very positive so that's good um but yeah if they do announce a sequel with the potential kind of plot and tension that awaits the characters there, this could really be a trilogy of movies, or maybe a series of movies is a better way of saying it. We don't know if it's going to be a trilogy or more. But either way, something that is really worth getting excited about. Maybe, and I only say that because in the day and age of comic book movies ruling Hollywood, it's kind of fun to get this uh, this kind of refreshing take. It's not a DC movie, it's not a Marvel movie, it doesn't really try to be, which I think is a great a great thing. So yeah, if you like action movies, you like comic book movies, one or the other or both, then really I think you'd be crazy not to watch The Old Guard at some point soon. All right, let's just get this next movie out of the way. Money Plane, I've alluded to it many times during the course of this podcast so far, and yeah, we should just talk about it. Let's do it. Money Plane, now. You're dead! Your families are all dead. You, your crew, and everyone you ever met. Dead! By the time you touch down. Now bring me my money! So as I said before, the primary reason I watched this movie at all in the first place is Kelsey Grammer. I love Frasier. Kelsey Grammer, despite his, uh, his personal politics, let's say, is one of my more favorite actors. I think Frasier, genuinely speaking, I genuinely think Frasier is both my favorite and the best sitcom of all time. Uh, I, I love I love Frasier more than any other sitcom by far. It's not even really close for second place. I don't really know what second place would be, by the way. I guess Parks and Rec, maybe, I guess? I don't really know, to be completely honest. I haven't really thought about it. But Frasier is number one. And Kelsey Grammer is the reason I watched it. In this film... He is the villain. He is the antagonist. He plays a character named Darius Grouch III, who might as well have been evil Frasier. The real bummer is that he's also barely in this movie. He's not really in Money Plane, even though the the trailers use him very liberally. He's in a lot of it. I don't know. It's weird. It's a it's a strange film. It, it, the plot really, really revolves around robbing the titular Money Plane, which essentially is a high-stakes casino on board a plane where billions and billions of dollars in both, I guess, real cash and cryptocurrency, I guess they thought that would be really cool, but cryptocurrency, yes, Bitcoin and all the other kinds of cryptocurrency, they lie in wait aboard the money plane, and I can't even say that without laughing. Um, And uh, Jack Reese, who is played by Adam Copeland, is sent by Darius Grouch, who refers to himself, I should say, as the Grouch. He says, I am the Grouch. It's like he actually refers to himself as the Grouch, which I 
find baffling. <laughs> but anyways, it they, they, they spend a lot of time, as you might imagine, on board the money plane. And I guess a big part of it is also that the most degenerate, awful human beings, human traffickers and arm dealers and all sorts of things like that, all of these guys are on board the money plane and they gamble and gamble and gamble because they live they live life with tons of excess and so on. The only problem is it looks like they never went near an actual plane and chose to make the sets as restrictive as possible. Like I think we all know this movie was made exceptionally cheaply. Obviously, right? It's that kind of movie. It's like a campy B movie and it's made like that on purpose. So don't get me wrong, I understand that. But at the same time, God, they could have like they could have somehow got out of their way to show this extravagance that billionaires who get on money planes would likely enjoy, right? I mean, remember um remember Crazy Rich Asians when the two main characters travel to Singapore? There's a I want to say there's like a three minute scene where they're on the plane. I mean, a lot of it is just them them conversing in like their own little cabin. But there is a scene where the two main characters walk into the kind of the main deck of the plane. It's one of those double decker planes uh, that like you see traveling out of like Dubai or something like that. And that and that one scene had more opulence than this entire movie. And again, I know it's unfair to compare a great movie like Crazy Rich Asians to Money Plane, but like, God, come on. Is it, it's like they didn't even try, which I think bothers me more than anything else. It's so cheaply made and so cheap looking that it, it just, you don't ever believe that it could be some billionaire casino crazy villain Bond plane thing, right? Anyways, maybe that's a, maybe that's too much of a complaint. I don't know. Uh, again, Kelsey Grammer, barely in this movie. So I mentioned Adam Copeland, right? Adam Copeland is the protagonist of this movie, Jack Reese, again, who is, I guess, in in huge debt, and then Kelsey Grammer's character buys his debt from whoever he owes it to, and then forces him to, like, he uses that debt to force him to rob the money plane, and I still can't believe that's the name of this movie, by the way, but I I, I laugh because I, I think when they talk about how much money he owes, it's something like he owes millions of dollars millions and millions and millions and literal millions of dollars it was something like he owes like 10 or 20 million dollars and so at the beginning of the movie he's stealing a painting and then that would have squared away his debt and then because he couldn't steal the painting now he's going to go and rob the money plane and i'm just all i can think of is man what the hell did this guy do to owe millions and millions of dollars and it turns out he's just a bad gambler he's a bad gambler that's the reason he owes like 50 million dollars or whatever to the grouch and it's it blows me away that they chose that as the reason. But either way, Adam Copeland, protagonist, and you might know him better as wrestler Edge. Edge from the WWE. Isn't that crazy? And I, it's funny thing is, I don't necessarily think he's a bad actor because, I mean, he's a pretty successful wrestler in the WWE. He's a guy who has competed at WrestleMania and other giant wrestling events. And again, I, I say what you want about wrestling, but... I think a lot of these guys do have to sell it in a really convincing way, and I think Edge has done that over his career. And he was also on that TV show Vikings, if I recall. He was fine in that. He does look like a Viking. <laughs> I gotta say, long blonde hair, huge dude, jacked. But for whatever reason, God, Copeland, he looks so bored in this movie. Like He looks like he's just barely bothering to string two sentences together. It's just, he, he looks so uninterested. And it's a real shame, because I know he can deliver campy, fun performances, which I would imagine is the reason he was cast in this movie, 
And then he sucks at it. I don't really understand. It's weird. It's it's really strange. Thomas Jane is also in this movie, who you might recall from uh, The Punisher. Not the not the uh, Netflix Punisher, Punisher show, but the the original Punisher movies, I guess, before Marvel and Netflix kind of reacquired the character. But yeah, he was the original Punisher, funnily enough. I think he's also in that TV show, The Expanse, I want to say. That's sci-fi. I think it's on Amazon Prime. But yeah, The, the Expanse, which I've, I've read the books. I have not seen more than season one of the TV show, but it's a really good. And he, he is good in it, but he doesn't really have much to do in this movie. He's like the best friend character who helps out in a pinch. Uh, and then Denise Richards, who, if you remember was Christmas Jones in The World Is Not Enough. She was the Bond girl. I'm convinced she was only ever named Christmas, just so Bond can say, oh, I guess Christmas comes twice a year, right? So, But here, I, I'm naming all these actors. They don't really do anything in this movie. I mean, Thomas Jane has maybe, what, five lines of dialogue in this movie? And if that's the case, then Denise Richards has maybe one line of dialogue. So I, I don't know. It's not really, uh, I, I don't really, I could have not mentioned them and you probably wouldn't have even realized they were in this movie because really the two characters you'll remember will be Frasier and Edge. And uh, you know what? They're barely memorable as well. So yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't possibly actually recommend this movie to anyone. But I guess if you like either of those things, Frasier or the WWE, then you might at least be inclined to try it out, going into it with the expectations that it is a B-movie. But at the same time, I went in with those expectations, and I was still disappointed. So I guess the lesson is probably don't watch it, but hey, it's a pandemic. I mean, your options are probably limited (laughs) as it is. The next movie on our list, and we've gone through two so far, uh, the next one here is First Cow, which I would say is probably the mm, the deepest movie, quote-unquote, I'm using air quotes there, uh, that we're going to talk about on the podcast today. Not because, and I don't, again, I don't want to sound like a snob or anything, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's inherently better, certainly, but it's definitely the quietest, the, the slowest movie, and I think sometimes the word slow gets used in a in a negative way, like it connotes something bad, but I don't think that's the case whatsoever with this movie, so let's get into the review of Kelly Reichardt's First Cow. When I watched First Cow for the very first time, As I kind of mentioned in the preamble there, I think the first thing that struck me was that it was a slow movie. And again, you guys know, slow can mean something bad, right? And I've used slow as something, as a a way to put down a movie in the past, because I think slow movies do run the risk of losing the attention of their audiences, right? But slow movies are bad because when a Transformers movie is slow, it's bad because it's not supposed to be slow. This movie is supposed to be slow because it's very still. It's very beautiful. A lot of really long shots. A lot of points where the camera itself doesn't seem to move at all, or maybe it's moving very, very, very slowly. Certainly it moves with the characters as you see all the little little landscapes. This movie takes place, I should say, before we move on, uh, it takes place during the 1800s in Oregon, And of course, that's a very, I mean, now Oregon is a beautiful place, but in the 1800s before, I suppose, civilization spoiled it too much during the gold rush, I guess, and and traders and trappers and all these kinds of things. All these people are living out there on the frontier, I suppose. And and so you see a lot of that nature, a lot of that natural splendor, I guess, uh, with the slow moving camera 
And I think because it doesn't move a lot of the time, or because it moves very slowly a lot of the time, it does actually make the movie feel much calmer, right? Much more serene. I think that's a great word for this movie, serene. Very still, as I mentioned. And like I said, it takes place in Oregon. Uh, it, it really is about the relationship between these two men, Cookie and King Lou. That relationship is, uh, is, the, is the heart of the movie, and it's recalled First Cow, I should say, as well, because a landowner in Oregon at the time on the river imports a cow. I think he was supposed to import three cows, like a, 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 a mama cow, a daddy cow, and a child, a calf. And the father and the uh, calf die on the journey. So it's just the one female cow that makes it to Oregon, to America. And it's really about these two men, Cookie and King, who go and milk the cow kind of without the landowner's permission and use the milk to make baked goods that they sell to miners and other workers and so on, right? And again, I mentioned the relationship between these two guys, and I think it's really great, right? I mean, Cookie, for example, he's a frontiersman who not only is a cook for traders and travels with them, but he kind of seems, I don't know, he he almost seems less masculine sometimes because he doesn't carry a gun He's soft-spoken. He's not a giant person. He doesn't like confrontation. I mean, who likes confrontation, right? But at the same time, like, you guys know the archetype that is representative of that era in American history, right? Like, the rugged guy with the gun and the axe and the raccoon hat with the tail dangling down. That's the kind of person, I think, that is emblematic of that era in time, right? That kind of genre, let's say, if you want to reduce it to movies only, and I think because of that, he is kind of a man, he's a man out of place, let's say. And King Lou, uh, and again, I know it's, it sounds weird, he's not a king, obviously, that's just, he, he's a, a, I think a, I think he's either a descendant of, or is uh, an Asian worker who was brought over to work uh, on railroads and other kinds of, of projects by Americans. I mean, a lot of those people were brought over as indentured slaves, right? So he he is not, as far as we know, we don't really know too much about his backstory, but he is more of a the rogue, right? He's the chatty type. We can turn a thought into a scheme and take advantage, but because he's not white, he's also looked down upon. So they kind of rely on each other and their skills to make a living for themselves in this, again, wild frontier that is Oregon. And I think it's also nice... And I don't really think it's a spoiler to say this, but these guys never really fight over money. They never really fight over a woman. And I think in a way that makes their friendship feel more real. Maybe it's because so many movies do have these have people like this fighting over money or, or women or something like that. And because they don't, it makes it feel so so authentic. I use that word a lot today, authentic. And it really does... It really does feel like that. They, they're also. It also helps that these two actors are just tremendous. That they can communicate what they're saying to each other with sly glances. And you, the viewer, after you see their their relationship develop, you also kind of get it immediately. Whereas the rest of the characters obviously don't. And that I think obviously is just is just good acting. But it's also it also just makes it feel again more real. So like I mentioned. They have this scheme, they milk this first cow, they're basically stealing it from the landowner. And it's interesting because it's almost like watching the first seeds of greed in these people grow right in front of our eyes. Certainly not like ever in America, but it's fascinating to watch them encounter success and basically immediately decide to go, grow their business by going back to milk the cow more and going back again. It's basically capitalism at work, which I find really interesting if, considering you're watching it through the lens of of the 1800s, right? Eventually, 
their business plan becomes so popular, you want you watch them let people jump the line for their oily cakes, as they call them, for a little bit more money each time, and they're supposedly made with some ancient Chinese secret, as King Lu tells everyone. In one such instance, when they're selling their oily cakes, you kind of see this guy finally get to the front of the line to get the last cake of the day, because obviously they can only make so many in a day, right? The guy behind him sees this and jumps in front and offers him actually more money than what they were asking for to get it, and this guy... I guess he blames them, and he gives them this such a cut-eye, like this this murderous glance. And he does actually factor in into the end of the movie, which is pretty interesting, because he seems like he seems so insignificant, but the movie lingers enough on this guy to tell you then that he's he he is important in some way. And I I want to I want to go back to the beginning of the movie, actually, like the very first maybe five minutes of the movie, maybe even less, honestly. But it actually starts in modern day, in present day Oregon, with this woman uh, who's actually played by Aaliyah Shockwad. I only mentioned that because she's in the first five minutes and then not in the rest of the movie whatsoever. But she uncovers two skeletons lying side by side in the dirt in some Oregon park, I guess. And you learn at the end of the movie that this is Cookie and King Lou. Now, you never actually see them die. They just lie down, take a nap, and it's implied that they never got up from that nap. And it's ultimately left up to your imagination But it's interesting to think, going back to that young man, it's interesting to think that the person who probably does eventually kill them is a man that was slighted by one of them, slash both of them, when they let their greed get the better of them, when they basically succumb to capitalism. And I know, you know, you can talk about how it's not, it's not that guy's, it's not their fault, they just let the market dictate what people were willing to pay, but it's just that kind of, I guess, notion, which is... I guess somewhat reflected in today's 2020 era to the, 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 the climate we live in. Uh, I think that's why it's so poignant because you never actually see how they die again, super implied. And it's, I would, would be willing to bet that is what happens, but again, you don't actually know, right? Ultimately, I think first cow is, it looks at race. Certainly it looks at class. It looks like the idea of masculinity and it kind of, looks at it through the filter of the 1800s, which I guess makes it a little more, a little interesting because it's without the social conventions of 2020, for example, but it's still applicable to today. And I think because this movie is so slow and not really bothered at all itself to move any faster, you really get a great chance to drink all of that in, the dialogue, the interplay, the glances, as I mentioned, the nature, everything about it. It's a very beautiful film, and I think if you go into this movie expecting it to be thrilling, and I mean, it is thrilling though, right? But if you go into it expecting it to be fast and furious, then I think you'll be disappointed. But at the same time, it's it's really fun to watch because of, of the the great acting in it as well. It's funny to think that of our four movies we're talking about today, we, we're, we're getting to our last one here, Palm Springs, and they're all so different, right? And Palm Springs itself, I mean, it's a rom-com, and I would say, I would argue that it leans more towards the rom part than the com part, <laughs> if that makes sense, but it's just such a fun movie. It's inventive, it's light, but also tackles some interesting issues, so without further ado, as I like to say, let's get into the review for Palm Springs.
Palm Springs, starring Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti, is probably one of the more easy-to-explain movies slash concepts, I guess, that you would have seen definitely in quarantine, probably in all of 2020, because you could boil it down to saying it's like Groundhog Day, but with two people instead of just one. Three people if you count J.K. Simmons, but he is kind of like the third wheel character who doesn't appear all that often. He's like the, he is the next highest billed actor, but he's not really in the movie all that much, even though, you know, he does his great thing of really just turning a, a small role into a really memorable one. But either way, three people still, but Ultimately, it's Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti's show. And uh, yeah, that's really it, though, right? Groundhog Day with two guys, two people. It's, that's the concept. It's the, it's the morning of a wedding. And Andy Samberg's character, Niles, has been trapped reliving this day over and over and over and over again. And eventually, somehow, and I won't spoil it, but eventually, somehow, Kristen's character, Sarah, gets sucked into this kind of like time vortex that they're all in, I suppose. And she is then stuck reliving the same day with him over and over and over again. And they're only aware of each other in the sense that, like, I mean, obviously they can talk to everyone else and so on, like in Groundhog Day. But only they are aware that they're in a time loop. And they're aware and they remember their experiences both individually and with each other over the time loop as it goes on. And that's pretty much it, right? I would say it doesn't just only rely on Groundhog Day, which I think is often and rightly so credited with inventing or at the very least popularizing that whole time loop formula it definitely also draws from things like edge of tomorrow that tom cruise movie that everyone really likes i certainly did as well happy death day which was a lot better than i expected it to be and remember that tv show russian doll that too in a way but again the big leap here is that niles doesn't go through it alone he does it with somebody else, right? And I think that's what makes it fresh and interesting. And I think also what makes it somewhat refreshing as well is that by the time you, the viewer, begin this film, okay, Niles has been in this time loop for long enough that he knows, for example, the dance moves of everyone on the wedding reception floor. Everything that goes on, he's tried killing himself multiple times. A lot has happened for him personally over the course of and it's implied he's been there for so long he doesn't even remember what his life was like before everything happens whether or not you want to believe him when he says that is another story uh, and that's kind of part of the movie certainly but i mean he's been there long enough that he has doesn't remember really all that well every exact detail of his life prior to this one day right so all that to say is he's been there for a really really long time which i think i almost feel like is a meta joke on groundhog day considering that when you when you think of, and I don't think they ever talk about this in the movie, but when you think of a lot of people have talked about, well, how long would Bill Murray have had to have been in that movie to learn all the things he learns? And you would imagine it's something like, what, hundreds of days? Th- maybe thousands of days? Maybe he's been there for decades and, and just lived it over and over and over and over and over again? And I think it's implied that Niles is approaching that if he hasn't experienced it already. But because he is... Because he's hap- that, that's happened to him already, you kind of get a fun experience of him being the old hand at things and knowing what's going to happen. And then you also get to experience it all for the first time yourself as the viewer with Sarah, who is coming to the realization herself for the very first time, which I think is really fun. It's really fun. It's just so light, I think. And uh, certainly at, at its core, as I mentioned, it's a rom-com. And I think it's it, the reason I mentioned before that it's closer to the rom part is because... Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti have just exceptional chemistry. They feel, again, believable is a word I've used, as well as authentic. 
they feel that, right? And they're kind of, quote-unquote, aha moments, eureka moments as a couple, I should say, because, I mean, those moments always happen in rom-coms, right? But their moment is very sweet. I don't really want to talk about it too much in terms of any of the gags or jokes, because, I mean, that's the whole reason you watch these movies, as well as the big ultimate uh, choice they make at the end. Um, Again, that's kind of like formulaic for a a rom-com, but because it does kind of turn this genre, if not on its head, at least on its side, so you're looking at it a little differently. Yeah, I don't want to spoil too much of it. Those jokes and gags, those one-off gags, man, they would have killed in a crowded theater. It's unfortunate that Palm Springs didn't and won't get the release that it deserved uh, in a crowded theater, because I think a lot of people would have really found this. Like, I, I could see an alternate universe where Palm Springs, there are articles being written about it, like, was Palm Springs the hidden gem of 2020? Are we underappreciating Andy Samberg's dramatic talent? <laughs> like, stuff like that, right? And I think there's probably some validity to that, because it is a really good movie, but at the same time, yeah, it's a shame it didn't get to play in theaters. It would, I think it would have played at some film festival, or did play at a film festival, and then never made it to wide release, and only is now, as in a couple of weeks ago, making it to VOD, which is how I watched it. Certainly, because you can only... I think in the United States, you can watch it on Hulu, but of course in Canada, you cannot watch Hulu. Hulu is not available here, so you can just have to kind of just pay for it outright, which is what I did. But yeah, it's a it's a fantastic film. Very inventive. Great chemistry between the two leads. J.K. Simmons steals the couple of scenes that he is in uh, with some surprising character development by the time you reach the end of the story. Um, and some fun little Easter eggs and if, if you're paying attention to the flow of time across the uh, many, 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 many takes of this uh, wedding day, which is kind of cool. So if you like that kind of thing, if you like rom-coms, if you like uh, romantic movies in general, not really a drama, certainly. It's very lighthearted, as I mentioned. But I think if you like any aspect of that, and certainly if you like Andy Samberg, this might be one of his best roles yet, then you will absolutely love Palm Springs. I recommend this movie to basically everyone because I think it has something... It's not such a cliche, something for everyone, but I really do think this appeals to a very broad audience. So if you're on the fence, I would say just bite the bullet and watch it because considering the other uh, the other offerings on the film calendar in the in the near future, considering what may or may not be on the on the film calendar in the near future, I think you could do a lot worse. Let's put it that way than Palm Springs. That's it for our movie reviews, which is uh, pretty fun. Again, four new movies. Again, six if you really want to count my weirdo pseudo-reviews of Hamilton and Jumanji The Next Level. But yeah, those are the new movies I saw in July. Hopefully there'll be more VOD releases at the very least across August, and then we can get some more movies here. I really do wonder what's going to happen with Tenet and watching that in theaters. I really don't know if I'm going to feel comfortable going back into theaters, but then again, if it's going to be social distance, if I'm going to be wearing a mask, I'll probably have to not drink any pop or eat popcorn even though i do like doing that in movie theaters but hey we'll, we'll have to see i i think ho- hopefully by the time we do the next episode i'll have either seen tenet or there'll be more news on whether or not it is actually getting released in theaters or not because i think that is still somewhat up in the air um, we'll talk a little more next time as well later in august maybe with a guest about all of these different release schedules what it could mean for the vod thing If you recall, we talked a little bit about Trolls World Tour and the kind of ongoing battle between NBC Universal and AMC Theaters, and it looks like they've agreed 
over the last little while to shorten the the distance or time period, I guess is a better way of saying it, between the release online and the release in a movie theater. And I think it's been shortened down from like months to just, what, 10 days or something like that? So we'll talk a little bit more about that next time. I wanted to also touch on the best drama ever bracket, but before I do that, as the last thing, I actually forgot to mention one thing about the old guard, which was simply that, because I had said in the review that it was, the only knock on it was that it was a little too formulaic, it was a little too conventional, it was too concerned with the introductions of the characters and the new character as well, which I think is a, I, I still think is a valid criticism. The other thing that I forgot to mention that is a legitimate criticism is the music. The music selection, because it's a lot of kind of popular quote-unquote music in this movie, it sucks. I don't know who picked it. I don't know who curated it. I don't know who said this is good for this part and this is good for another part. It is all bad. I'm shocked that such a good movie had such completely out-of-place, tonally jarring music. It takes you so much out of the movie. I can't believe I forgot to mention that in the review, but it was just I couldn't finish the episode without mentioning that oh my god it is it is god awful but yes that is another aspect of the old guard that i think absolutely deserves to be mentioned in terms of criticism but again it's a a really good movie i ultimately i was very much more than satisfied with it and i think you will be too but yes i mentioned the best drama ever bracket and uh you remember how it was structured. There were four conferences, the pre-1969 conference, 1970 to 1989 conference, the 1990 to 2009 conference, and the 2010 to present conference, and all of them had 16 seeds. And uh, the winners, instead of going through every bracket from beginning to end, I'll just say this. The winner of the 1969 conference was Citizen Kane, a one seed. Uh, the winner of the 1970 to 1989 conference was The Godfather Part 1, a two seed, and it beat out in the final matchup of that conference, The Godfather Part 2, which was the one seed, right? If that's not confusing with the ones and the twos, I apologize, but that is what it is. I it really just personal preference because I prefer The Godfather Part 2, but hey, who's really complaining because The Godfather Part 1 is one of the most significant movies probably ever made. So there you go. It won the uh, 1970 to 1989 conference. 1990 to 2009 produced Saving Private Ryan, another one seed, and the final champion, I guess, from the 2010 to present conference was Parasite, again, a one seed, maybe some recency bias there, certainly, but hey, Parasite was a really, really, really good movie, right? So those were our four winners that took on each other in the final four. The Godfather took on Parasite on that side of the bracket, and on the other side, Citizen Kane versus Saving Private Ryan. Uh, Saving Private Ryan just squeaked out a victory over Citizen Kane, and uh, Godfather absolutely annihilated Parasite and then went on to absolutely annihilate Saving Private Ryan as well. So by a huge margin, The Godfather is our champion, a two-seed. Crazier things have happened. Again, I thought The Godfather Part 2 would be the winner all the way through, but The Godfather Part 1 did eventually take it, and that's our winner from the Best Drama Ever bracket. Like I said, probably one of the most culturally significant films of our lifetime. Certainly, I mean, the movie was made well before I was born, but it still has ramifications today in in all sorts of media, right? Maybe going forward, we'll try and do one of these brackets every year. It would be fun to do it again. I wanted to do Best Action Movie, but that was kind of taken by another podcast, so I guess we'll try Best Sci-Fi Movie, maybe, next year. Uh, You guys know my penchant, my love for sci-fi movies, so that seems like a safe choice, right? We can probably come up with 
a couple of different conferences. I'm sure there will be some sequels in there. There'll be, again, some Invasion of the Body Snatchers, some movies from the 30s and 40s in there as well, as all the way up to 2021, if we <laughs> if we do get movies back next year. But uh, until then, we will continue doing the Showtime Movie Podcast. I always appreciate the conversation with you guys, whether it is here or elsewhere. I hope you all stay safe in this continuing pandemic era. I hope you all, at least for me, I hope you continue wearing masks. If you're not, I hope you are staying safe and trying to enjoy life in some way. I hope movies find you soon. I hope uh, you have enjoyed this episode in terms of uh, finding out whether or not you want to watch any of these movies, but we will keep you abreast with all the latest movie news next time out. So once again, this has been the Showtime Movie Podcast. I'm Show. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, have a great night. (laughs) 